Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Airwave, a student-led anesthesia podcast for medical students. My name is Maya, and I'm a second-year medical student at McMaster University. Joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Darissa. Thanks, Maya, for the warm welcome. My name is Darissa, and I'm also a second-year medical student at McMaster University. As always, this podcast reflects our own views and not necessarily those of our institution. I'd also like to emphasize that the Airwave podcast is not for medical advice, just good old-fashioned medical education. Today, we will be talking about an overview of regional anesthesia, but more specifically, peripheral nerve blockade. We'll answer the following questions. 1. What is regional anesthesia? 2. An introduction to peripheral nerve blockade. 3. Indications and contraindications. 4. An overview of the popliteal sciatic nerve block and its relevant anatomy. 5. What are the techniques involved? 6. What are the common side effects and adverse events? Let's dive right in. Did you know that the history of regional anesthesia started with the discovery of cocaine as a local anesthetic back in 1884? Wait, wait, hold on. Did I hear that right? Cocaine? Yep, that's the one. It may come as a surprise, but in its early days, cocaine was actually used as an anesthetic. The man behind the discovery was Dr. Carl Kohler, an ophthalmologist who found that the substance could be used as a numbing eye drop before surgery. Wow, talk about a high moment in anesthesia. (laughs) That's for sure. Let's start by defining regional anesthesia. Regional anesthesia encompasses a variety of techniques to block nerves with local anesthetics. They can be briefly classified into 1. Central neuroaxial blockade and 2. Peripheral nerve blockade. For today's episode, we're going to be focusing on the latter. Peripheral nerve blockade refers to the placement of local anesthetic agents onto or near peripheral nerves. The technique is performed using a needle under ultrasound guidance to allow for visualization of the nerves and surrounding structures. This is done by administering a single shot of local anesthetic or by placing a continuous infusion catheter to provide a prolonged analgesic effect. With that in mind, let's jump into today's case. All right, so picture this. You are on your anesthesia block, and your next patient is a 63-year-old gentleman requiring left ankle tendon surgery. His past medical history is significant for moderate to severe COPD, severe obstructive sleep apnea, and hypertension. What do you think would be the most appropriate anesthetic plan for this patient? So our patient sounds fairly high risk. A standard general anesthetic with endotracheal intubation might present challenges with respect to his COPD and his sleep apnea. Specifically, with respect to COPD, we have to keep in mind the risk of bronchospasm, pneumothorax, mucus plugging, dynamic hyperinflation, hypoxia, and hypercarbia. The obstructive sleep apnea may create risks because of its association with a higher sensitivity to volatile anesthetics and the respiratory depressant effects of opiates, difficulty with bag mask ventilation, and an increased risk of airway obstruction in the perioperative period. Naturally, this would be a great time to consider using a lower extremity nerve block. But before we jump into any procedure, let's review the indications and contraindications. The indications for peripheral nerve blockade are to provide surgical anesthesia or to provide opiate-sparing multimodal analgesia for the intraoperative and postoperative period. It's important to note that, depending on the surgery, some peripheral nerve blocks can provide full surgical anesthesia. In other cases, nerve blocks can only be a supplement to a general anesthetic. 
Peripheral nerve blocks are typically used in procedures on the extremities such as knee, hand, or foot surgery, and certain types of abdominal or chest surgery like hernia repair or breast augmentation. Peripheral nerve blocks are indicated in patients who benefit from multimodal analgesia and in some cases where a general anesthetic may be too high risk, permitting, of course, that the nerve block can provide full surgical anesthesia. Depending on the surgery in question, using peripheral nerve blocks can lead to lower post-operative pain, faster hospital discharge, improved rehabilitation, and higher patient satisfaction, with reduced post-operative nausea and vomiting, sedation, and itching. The relative contraindications include having an uncooperative patient, excessive anxiety, systemic infections, and bleeding disorders, which can increase the risk of hematoma, which can lead to ischemic nerve damage. Pre-existing neuropathies are also a relative contraindication as they may increase the risk of permanent nerve damage. It is very important to carefully document any sensory or motor impairments prior to performing a nerve block. Absolute contraindications to peripheral nerve blockade include patient refusal, allergy to local anesthetics, and skin infection at the site of needle insertion. The insertion of a needle through infective tissue can possibly cause further spread of that infection, and local anesthetics are less effective in infected acidotic tissue. All right, so given our patient's history of COPD and sleep apnea, Opting for a peripheral nerve block would be favorable to avoid the negative respiratory effects of general anesthesia, as well as to minimize the requirements for perioperative opioid analgesia. Now that we know our patient has no absolute or relative contraindications, let's go ahead and introduce the nerve block best suited for his surgery. A patient awaiting ankle tendon surgery would likely benefit from having a popliteal sciatic nerve block as the main anesthetic, along with intraoperative sedation. The popliteal nerve block is indicated for foot, ankle, and Achilles tendon surgery. It can also be used for postoperative analgesia after posterior knee surgery. This block provides effective sensory blockade below the knee, but may not provide full motor blockade. As a result, it may be useful in our case of a tendon repair, but may not provide full surgical anesthesia for an orthopedic procedure, such as an open reduction and internal fixation of the ankle, which would either require a spinal anesthetic or a general anesthetic. Now, let's do everyone's favorite part. Let's talk about the relevant anatomy. The lower extremities are innervated by the lumbar plexus and sacral plexus. For this particular case, which deals with the ankle, we'll focus on the sacral plexus. The sacral plexus provides motor and sensory information for the posterior thigh, some of the pelvis, most of the lower leg, and the entire foot. It's formed from the anterior rami of the L4 to L5 lumbar nerves and the S1 to S3 sacral nerves. The two major nerves of the sacral plexus are the sciatic nerve and the posterior cutaneous nerve of the thigh. The popliteal sciatic block anesthetizes the sciatic nerve in the popliteal fossa as it bifurcates into the tibial nerve and common peroneal nerve. Since the sciatic nerve bifurcates approximately 5 centimeters above the propliteal crease, our goal is to block the sciatic nerve before it splits into these two components. For this setup, you'll need an ultrasound machine with a linear transducer with a sterile sleeve and gel, a standard nerve block tray, and some local anesthetic typically 20 cc's of 0.5% bupivacaine. One of the most common approaches to the popliteal sciatic nerve block is the lateral approach where the patient is placed in supine position. The leg to be blocked is elevated and slightly flexed at the knee while the calf and 
foot are supported with a footrest, which provides an unobstructed view of the popliteal fossa. The injection site area is sterilely prepped and topicalized with 1 to 3 millimeters of 1% lidocaine using a 25-gauge needle. The ultrasound probe is then placed transverse to the thigh and in the popliteal crease. The popliteal artery is used as a landmark and can be identified as a pulsating structure on ultrasound by holding the probe still. The popliteal artery is located outside of the sciatic nerve sheath. The semimembranous muscle and semitendinous muscles are located medially to the popliteal artery, while the biceps femoris muscles are located laterally to the artery. The tibial nerve is then identified lateral or superficial to the popliteal artery and will look like a honeycomb-like structure on ultrasound. From medial to lateral, you should see the popliteal artery, then the popliteal vein, and then the nerve bundle. If the nerve is not easily identified, tilting the transducer probe towards the feet can help improve the contrast and make the nerve more visible. Once the tibial nerve is visualized, it is followed cephalad with the probe to the point where the common peroneal nerve joins to form the sciatic nerve. At this point, we'll insert the block needle out of the plane and slowly advance toward the sciatic nerve as it bifurcates into the tibial and common peroneal nerve. It's important to keep our eyes on the needle at all times via ultrasound and to stop advancing if we ever lose sight of our needle tip. Good communication with the patient is also needed at this step because any complaints of paresthesias should prompt the clinician to stop and withdraw the needle 1 to 2 millimeters. Once the needle is in within the sciatic nerve sheath, the syringe connected to the needle is negatively aspirated to ensure no blood is drawn. Then, 5 milliliters increments of local anesthetic for a total of 10 to 30 milliliters is injected while intermittently aspirating. If blood appears in the syringe, or if the patient complains of pain or paresthesia, or if there's any resistance to injection, the injection should be stopped and the needle should be repositioned. On ultrasound, if we're successful, we should see local anesthetic distribute within the sciatic nerve sheath and cause the tibial nerve and common peroneal nerves to grow further apart. Once we're done with the injection, the first signs of block onset include the patient reporting that their foot feels different or that they are unable to wiggle their toes. Sensory anesthesia of the skin is often the last to develop. It is also very important to be aware of the signs of local anesthetic toxicity, which could occur if our local anesthetic was injected intravascularly. These signs include perioral numbness, a metallic taste in the mouth, tinnitus, and can lead to confusion and drowsiness. Luckily for us, our patient tolerated the block well with no complications. Yay, perfect. And now we're ready to bring the patient to the operating room for his ankle tendon surgery. Now that we've gone over how the popliteal block is performed, let's review some adverse effects and possible complications. While peripheral nerve blocks are generally very safe with a low incidence of complications, it's important to always be aware of potential risks. These risks include block failure and the need to supplement or convert to general anesthesia, bleeding, infection, damage to surrounding tissues, permanent nerve damage, and intravascular uptake of local anesthetics leading to systemic toxicity. And that marks the end of our case. Amazing, we really hit a lot of great points there. Let's go over a quick summary of what we just learned. First, peripheral nerve blockade is an important tool that can be used for surgical anesthesia or analgesia in a variety of surgeries. 
The advantages generally are to avoid side effects of general anesthesia, such as respiratory depression, and to minimize opioid use intraoperatively and postoperatively. Disadvantages include risk of block failure, infection, nerve damage, and local anesthetic systemic toxicity. This technique is performed using an ultrasound guidance for visualization of the surrounding structures and to confirm needle placement. Lastly, contraindications include patient refusal to consent, bleeding disorders, sepsis or local infection, neuropathies, and allergies. And that brings us to the end of this episode. We hope that you'll be able to apply what you've learned today in your upcoming clinical rotations. And we would like to say a big great thank you to Emily Au, a third-year medical student from McMaster University, for her content creation, as well to our resident content editor, Dr. Peru Pinchal of PGY1 at the University of Toronto, and a big thanks to Dr. Koravani for his continued support. Also, make sure to check out our website for the show notes, tweet at us on our Twitter page at Airway Podcast, and follow us on Instagram at Airway Podcast for any questions or suggestions. And until next time, keep working hard, stay healthy and safe, take some nice deep breaths, and count back from 10.